0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Arshul Kobahite. I'm a senior lecturer uh, in the School of Physics at the University of Sydney, uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all uh, to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture, and this, is, this lecture is also a part of the program of the International Symposium on uh, Cosmology and Particle Astrophysics, which just started yesterday here at the University of Sydney. Um, Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners uh, of the land on which we meet, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. It is upon the ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, uh, research, teaching and learning practices with this, this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. I think we anticipate a very interesting evening today because uh, we have one of the world-renowned experts in the field, uh, Professor Manfred Lindner. I would like to welcome and introduce, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce him. Uh, Professor Lindner is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics and a professor at the Faculty of of Physics and Astronomy uh, of uh, Heidelberg University in Germany. Um, He is known, well known uh, for many important contributions in fields of theoretical particle physics and cosmology. In particular, his uh, research focuses on uh, very elusive particles like neutrinos and the dark matter. Uh, in addition to, to his theoretical work, uh, he is also a, a leading expert and an investigator in several experimental particle physics programs all over the uh, world, including uh, famous Xenon International uh, Collaboration, uh, which aims to detect the dark matter. So we are very fortunate to have him today because he is going to talk about dark side of the universe. So please welcome Professor Lindner. Uh, just, just a few announcements about the procedure we, we're going through. So, Professor Linder will deliver uh, his talk first, and then we'll, take, uh, we'll have a time for questions. Uh, say uh, there will be mobile mic- microphones uh, here available, so if you have a question during this question session, please uh, make yourself known, take your hand up, and, and you'll be able to, uh, to ask the question. Okay? All right. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah.
1: So, it's a pleasure to be here this evening and to talk to you this evening and tell you about the dark side of the universe. It's actually about, about ghosts, you could say. Did you ever want to wonder if ghosts really exist? Let's start with looking at astronomy, and it made enormous progress in cosmology in the last decades. If nowadays pictures of the universe getting extremely deep seeing structures which we never dreamt of, etc., to the point where you start to wonder what's all out there. And the question that you might ask then is do we really see everything? And this has two sides. One side is to say, well, we, there may be hidden matter that you don't see because it's encapsulated, hidden, in a, somewhere uh, uh, obscured, etc. And one example is Jupiter-like objects. A Jupiter, a star that's too small to burn itself like a sun, is very hard to see if it's far away, so that's a very efficient way to hide matter in the universe. That's not what we'll talk about. We'll talk about the second version, namely matter that's in principle invisible, like ghosts. And we know actually that such particles exist, they're called neutrinos, and there's very strong evidence that other particles and things of this type exist, and I'll guide you a little bit through that, that kind of logic, what we know about it and how we Think we can detect that, even though it's not visible. Before starting off, it's good then to think a second what actually happens on a physics, from a physics perspective when you see something. And this is about seeing aids. So we have got used to the fact that many of us have glasses to see. They have a focused picture. We use telescopes, we use microscopes, etc. And in modern times, you use electronic vision aids where we, for example, have cameras and, and, and a TV screens somewhere else. We, you see the news every evening, it's happening somewhere else, you, but you think, you think you're there. In between, you can put computers, process the signal. And processing the signal means that you actually can do some manipulation, you could say. You can take the full spectrum of electromagnetic waves from gamma rays down to radio and TV rays, etc. And only the small part which is visible to your eye can be used by this method. You can have a camera that actually sees infrared light, transform it into this visible spectrum so you see heat, you see temperature. You can make x-rays visible and all these things by doing this kind of processing, by projecting electromagnetic radiation into the visible spectrum. That's what what, what seeing is about. Next thing is... Uh, uh, when you then look at these pictures that you certainly have seen from, from astronomical objects, then these most of the time are actually computer-processed images. That's not what you see when you look out with a telescope. There's amplification, amplifiers involved, there's filters involved, frequency shifts. It's just a very smart way to make things visible which are there, which are in, somehow emitting electromagnetic radiation. Now Next, you should think a little bit what it means to see something with the eye, and it's actually very simple. Visibility, I will argue, has to do with electric charges on the microscopic level. Light is made of quanta, so called photons. They propagate straight lines, and they scatter off electric charges. Microscopically, we have this kind of picture where a photon comes in, hits an electron, gives it a kick like a billiard ball, and it continues and emits a photon and goes on. That's the microscopic process, how a light particle interacts with charges, here with an electron. Now, when you see with your eye something, it's actually an interesting story. When you see, look at this table, you see it's white. What's happening is some light from down there comes here, hits an atom there. And hitting an atom, it actually excites some of the electrons in the atom. And then the excited energy falls back and re-emits the light, and it in all directions, diffuse. And some of the photons from this table come back to your eye, and eventually hit your eye and the retina. And back in the retina, there's an electrochemical process, which then goes to your brain, and the eyes saw the table. That's because light contact travel from here to there. Now, that means that particles, atoms, molecules, all these things they see become visible in the same way, and it's really the scattering of electric charges. So if these particles here wouldn't have charges here, you wouldn't see them. Now, that means, if you think ahead, if there is matter, a form of matter, which is made from particles which have no charges, you wouldn't see them, because there isn't light that would scatter. So they would be invisible. If, there was, if this table would have charges, the light would just go through, it would, you wouldn't see it, because nothing would scatter back. So there's an invisible shadow world, then, if you have such particles, and then once you have it, once you believe there's this invisible word, the question is how to make it visible, because you can't talk about something that you claim is there and not prove that it's there. So in science, you have to always prove what's there. That's not a new problem, by the way. And people used this way many centuries ago to, uh, to, to make something visible that you can't see initially. And that's what I call seeing with gravity. Hundreds of years ago, people discovered the Ke- Kepler's law, that the planet moves around the sun in a certain way, uh, where the position and the velocity follow certain rules. By knowing Kepler's rule, you could actually find new planets, new objects, by doing the following exercise. With your telescope, you look at the planets you know, and you, cal- you measure the position and the velocity, and see how these objects move. And then you calculate with Kepler's law, and see where should these planets move to. And if you find the deviation that the planet moves to the wrong place, he said, hey, there must be something else pulling my planet somewhere else. And by doing these calculations, people were able to eventually find the position of an object that was not yet known. And then, of course, you tell your astronomer friend, go there, look there. That's where an extra object must be sitting. And that's how extra planets, asteroids, all these things were found. So this was actually seeing it in the end with a telescope, because it, but it's normal mapper. It was visible in the end, but it was very dim, and it was found by seeing with gravity first, by seeing the way how things move, and seeing that something is not there and is missing. So that old method is, is well known, and that's also it translates into this rotational speed from the distance from the sun. It's known that planets at a distance from the sun move at a velocity which goes like one over the square root of the radius. That will become interesting in a the moment. There's a certain speed as you go that you expect as a function of distance. The further out you go, the slower these planets move. And you know it, it's because the centrifugal forces get weaker as you go out there, but the speed gets lower, so it's balanced off, it's a stable orbiter. I tell you because the same thing has been seen later on in the cosmos on much larger scales, and that's the first evidence for the existence of dark matter, which I call dynamical evidence. It goes back to the 1930s, there was a Swiss astronomer. Uh, Fritz Zwicky, he was really a nasty guy. He was offending everybody, so nobody believed him. And maybe, that, maybe that was one of the reasons. So he was actually finding a problem in so-called galaxy clusters. And nowadays you see the same problem in a much nicer way in ga- galaxies themselves. If you look at a galaxy, it's a disk-like structure. It rotates. And if you draw a line from the center out there, this blue area here, and plot the velocity, the rotation velocity, as a function of distance, and you get this graph of there. This is the center, this is the outer part, and the velocity as you get out there is something you measure. And this is the data point. See, so it grows and then goes up like this. That's what you observe. Now, what do you expect? You expect in the middle is a rotating disk, and the rotating disk, the speed grows if you, uh, with distance, right? So you expect that it grows like this. That's also what you see. If you, go, if you go out there, if you take an object far out there, what you expect then is that this far-out star rotates around the galaxies if there was, was a planet around the Sun, or well, like 1 a square root r, like we saw it for the planets. So expect a curve like this. But that's not what you observe. There's many galaxies nowadays where you see these curves. It goes up, it's says flat. So what do you do about this? This object doesn't rotate the way it should from what you see. Like the planets that didn't rotate the way you expect them to see, And you can do the same thing people did in the old days, add something else that you didn't see to correct for that. And what you can do is you can add, as a function of distance from the center, extra invisible matter, something to correct for that. That's shown in this purple curve. You have to add more and more as you go out to make these rotation curves work again. Then, once you add this hypothetical purple matter here, then what you see rotates the way it should rotate. That's, so say, the basic argument. So, does it mean that the thing is there? I don't know. The second solution would have been, like in Kepler's case, that something is wrong with the laws of gravity. Same thing could be here. Maybe something is wrong with the laws of gravity when you go out from a galaxy and you're just thinking you have to add something. Now you have to go out and find other places to see if you find the same evidence for some missing matter or if it's just your galaxies that you looked at. Nowadays, the same thing is done, on, again, on larger scales, galaxy clusters, etc., on all scales. And every scale you see this kind of effect. It goes even to the whole scale of cosmology. When you take nowadays in a computer the Big Bang, you see some distribution of initial particles and run your computer and see how structures form and f- form the structures we see nowadays. You see that with the visible matter it doesn't work. Once you add this dark matter that you inferred from from these rotation curves, it does what it should do. So this is really an amazing story. On all scales, we see this lack of uh, of dynamical matter there that you need something else to correct for what we see today. There's another method, which I also want to explain to you, which is called gravitational lensing. It's upshot here. If you're an observer, and you look at, through a lens, you essentially have a light that bends over, so the object, the, the, the light from the object would go this way through a lens, and a gravitating object, a massive galaxy, or whatever it is, acts like a lens. It bends light a little bit, so light goes like this, etc. But this lensing here does not depend if you see the object itself or not. The only thing that counts is that there is a massive object. The, in a, in, a, in general, relativity is a massive object, deforming space, that's the lensing for you. So, if you have a a galaxy of your hands and could move it around like this in front of your eye in the night sky, you would see this simulation here. This is not the real thing, but it's just a simulation. There's some massive object that's moved around, and what you see is these pictures here, these rings here, which is an image of the galaxy in the past, which goes in different ways in this way. So it's like if you had an optical lens in front of you, that's what you would see. That's a simulation. You would see the so-called Einstein rings, which are you can identify from the spectroscopic identity Spectroscopy means you can really tell it's the same ring all over and identify it. These are real images down there This effect is seen see today, these Einstein rings, this gravitational lensing is standard technology nowadays in, in cosmology, and you can u- use it then. Because we, we, when you have this method, you can do bookkeeping by seeing how much lensing you have. You can essentially calculate how big the lens is, how much mass there is, and how many there are. So you can add up and ask yourself, is the amount of matter in the lenses, is it consistent with the amount of matter we see, or is there more? And again, with this method you find there's much more matter in the universe than you see with with the telescopes. So yet another argument that there's more matter out there than we see. This goes on, and among the experts there's now a whole long list of arguments why there should be something dark out there, and I just flash it, there are different methods if you look, you look at the keywords, you can look it up, and there's very nice articles on, on web pages where you can read the details. There's by now a list of 10 to 20 different arguments which all point the same direction, that there's much more out there in the universe than we see. Something invisible. And when you do the bookkeeping and add up, you end, you end with this pie chart here, that the total matter balance of the universe is as follows. There's radiation out there, which is only a half a percent, there's the chemical elements, uh, besides hydrogen and helium, which is 0.025%, not that much. There's the stars, which you see, which is also not much, only 0.8%. There's lots of gas of helium and hydrogen between, between galaxies, which makes it up 4%, and that's the colorful parts. So that's only 5% or so. The rest is new forms of matter. There's the so-called neutrinos. I will say something in a moment about them. And then there's the magic thing that... the Almost 27% must be some dark matter, some new form of matter that nobody has seen so far, which is not, which has to be discovered. And even more is out there, the form of dark energy, which is a very mysterious thing, which is connected to the pure energy density of empty space. So classical empty space is just a nothing, an empty arena. In modern... Modern thinking in modern quantum field theory, as we call it, we know that empty space has an energy density. It's a big mystery why this is this number here, etc. And I will not say much about this. I will focus about this part, about the thing that from structure. Now, with all these arguments pointing this direction, the next thing, of course, is you have to say, you can, you can argue forever, maybe there's something you misinterpret. You have to really go out and find it. You have to really, in the next step, directly detect dark matter not just to have inject arguments, et cetera, and so on. You have to detect it to prove that what you think is there really is there. That's an in- interesting exercise. And I will make a little detour now because we had this exercise before in the form of these particles called neutrinos. Neutrinos are funny particles which were invented a long time ago by a Swiss uh, physicist who was desperately trying to solve a problem. And this problem solution was that we invented ghost particles that you couldn't see. So let's quickly look at this. It was in the 30s of last century when people looked at radioactivity where some atom would decay to another atom, like cesium to barium, emitting an electron. People would measure the energy of the electron. And what they found is uh, is actually a a distribution like this. Well, if you have this picture that this... Atom decays and only emits the electron, then energy momentum conservation tells you that it should be one energy. It should also have the same energy, the difference in energy between these two, two nuclei. So, what's going on there? There's something missing or, or something wrong. So, people are speculating maybe energy momentum conservation is no longer true and all sort of things. And then it was, uh, Wolfgang Pauli who said, no, energy momentum conservation is holy, a holy thing. You shouldn't fool around with that. At the price for that, is I have to postulate a new extra particle to correct for that. And this extra particle has charge here in a tiny mass, and then the uh, picture looks like this, that the decay of, a, uh, of, an, of, a, of an atom into another one is not only that the mother goes to the daughter, an electron is emitted, but also a neutrino is emitted. And having two particles emitted, you can share the energy between two of them, and the electron can have a fraction of them, can get this distribution. So that was the prize. He had to invent a crazy particle and he was completely frustrated, saying, I did something one should never do. I invented something that would never be observed. That's not science. And he was wrong. By now, there have been three Nobel Prizes for neutrino Physics, the last one last year, and so it not, was not, 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 not that a bad guess. Neutrino Physics is today routine particle physics, I would say. There's experiments with high statistics and we learned a lot about them. When you look, for example, at neutrino physics today, there's a very interesting, broad set of topics, and I briefly give you a list of that. There's different neutrino sources which we see, where we learn from about particle physics, but we also use neutrinos to understand sources. One of them is the Sun. The Sun in the heart of the Sun, there are fusion processes which produce the energy which slowly moves out, takes about 10,000 years for the energy of the sun from the center to the surface. It takes eight minutes for the light to get here. So when you see the sun here, that's eight minutes old, the light, but the the energy production is uh, 10 to 100,000 years ago. Now, when you look at neutrinos today, there's 65 billion per square, thumbnail, per second, coming day and night. Night means all the way through the Earth. You have nowadays detectors that see the sun in neutrino light day and night, if you want, so you can see through the Earth, into the heart of the Sun, and see the Sun burn. And that's a little detail, but it's quite some exercise to, to do. And I'll show you then in a moment in the picture. So we learn about the Sun because we look inside out and understand how a star burns, how it evolves, which is very important for stellar evolution. Another source is in astronomy, there's old stars, for example, which they, when they burn up and collapse, they emit huge amount of neutrinos that has been seen once, and there are detectors waiting for the next event to be seen now in our na- astronomical neighborhood. Then cosmology, the Big Bang, when the universe started, produced lots of neutrinos, and there should be about 330 neutrinos every cubic centimeter of the universe. When you put up a little cubic there's 330 neutrinos in there, you'll never catch them because... So so far, nobody has an idea to detect them, but they are are there. And if every one of those neutrinos has a very tiny mass that adds up the whole cosmos to a huge number, so that's why the tiny neutrino masses are a non negligible contribution to the whole matter balance in the universe, this point, 17% that I showed you. Nuclear reactors are man-made neutrinos, anti-neutrinos. If you ever have a chance to visit such a power plant, Typical numbers are, uh, they produce 4 gigawatt, 4,000 megawatt of energy, thermal energy. Unavoidably, in the processes, about 3 to 3.5% of the energy emitted in neutrinos, which means that the power plant blows out hundreds of megawatt in neutrinos. Get out if you can visit such a power plant and go there to the reactor about, let's say, 10 meters distance, then there's about 20 kilowatt of energy streaming through your body, without ever doing anything to any you your whole lifetime. Because there's this enormous amount of neutrinos coming out there. You know it's happening, but it's not going to do anything because there's this extreme, tiny probability that one of these neutrinos interacts with anything. They're ghost particles. They just fall through. But there is this 20 kilowatt. 20 kilowatt is about 20 cooking stoves at full power. And if, you would, if these neutrinos would interact, you would evaporate immediately. So it just shows you these enormous numbers that you get with neutrinos. Another source is the atmosphere. The Earth is constantly bombarded from outer space with all sorts of particles, and in the atmosphere, uh, atoms are hit, and they produce secondary particles, and among others neutrinos. That's actually where they were first. These so-called neutrino oscillations were first discovered. Then the, we make neutrino beams these days. We send neutrino beams of hundreds of kilometers, here, for example, in the U.S., from Chicago to the Canadian border. In Europe, from CERN to Gran Sasso, we send these neutrinos across long distances. And of course, the Earth being curved means the beam goes through the Earth. There was a famous story when this was done in Italy. The Italian research ministry said, Oh, I'm amazed how cheap the tunnel was. You don't need a tunnel. They just go through because they're like they are ghost particles, right? And the last source uh, is, is the Earth on your feet. There's uh, little amounts of uranium thorium everywhere. There's natural radioactivity. And the Earth is big. So the total decay the decays that happen under your feet corresponds to about 60,000 nuclear power plants running, and they produce energy, heat, actually heat up the Earth, but they also produce, produce neutrinos, so-called geoneutrinos, and by measuring these geoneutrinos, they actually learn about geology. And this shows that these different, so different fields here connect to solar physics, astronomy, to nuclear physics, to particle physics, to geophysics. There's so a diverse set of topics that we deal now, do nowadays cover with these ghostly particles, because we have learned to detect them. And let me show you the sun. There's the sun in normal light here, in some UV light that's been translated. And this is the picture of a sun in neutrinos. The resolution is not spectacular, but it's from the inside of the Sun, not from the outside. So, and these pictures, these neutrinos are really, as I said, day and night, they are detected all over. So we have seen that ghostly particles exist, and we should not be surprised if other ones exist. Right? So if, well, why, why not another one? Now back to dark, this dark side of the universe, so there's this dark matter, and what is it then? You, and if you go through the arguments and put them together... Then I can tell you in one slide what it is, and then we'll, I'll tell you how we look for it. We know that this dark matter that we look for is probably not the modification of gravity. People have speculated, but it doesn't make sense, I would say. Most likely some other, other neutral particle, like neutrinos, but yet different. There are some hints from particle physics that actually guide us what we should be looking for. There's different conceivable candidates that have names like axion, sterile neutrinos, etc. But the most probable, likely one that most people in the community would be looking for are so-called sort of WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. And the WIMP is, in a first approximation, nothing else but a very massive neutrino. Like the neutrinos, another, another copy in some sense, but very much heavier. As heavy as, let's say, a typical atom um, uh, that it can get. The question, where should you, the dark matter be? Usually they follow the visible structures like the the galaxies, the Milky Way, there's the Sun here. The dark matter distribution is wider. It's about 5 to 10 times wider. So when you have a, a visible galaxy, think of it and think that we know there's a cloud, a halo of dark matter around it, particles that are not visible that surround the structure and actually contain more matter than the visible part of the galaxy itself. If you look into numbers, there's about one proton per cubic centimeter in this energy, which is nothing because in one cubic centimeter, centimeter, there's many protons when you take a cube of material. But if you take this on a cosmological scale, one proton in empty space is a lot. So there's a lot of matter out there in this cloud, in this halo around, around, uh, our visible structures. The next thing is when you look for these particles, you have to know where, where, what to, what to expect. And this is called the WIMP wind. Wind, wind is actually the following story. We, the Sun, the solar system, is about 8.5 kiloparsec away from the center of the galaxy. And we're actually falling with a speed of 220 kilometers per second. Don't tell police, because that's beyond speeding limits. With a speed of 220 kilometers per second towards the Cygnus Cluster, because the signals Cluster very massive, are essentially pulled there. And where we pull put there, we're plowing through the sea of wind particles. that sit there. They're not moving. So we're plowing through, just like uh, when you drive, let's say, in, in the winter night when there's snowfall, you see the snowflakes coming down there. But when you drive, they come to your, to your windscreen. So in that sense, we are plowing through this, this, uh, this, this wind particles, and we see them coming from a certain direction, and that's called wind-wind in the, in the community. There's a flow of particles coming from a certain direction that we expect. That's the what you're looking for. Now, I have to tell you how they detect it, but first, the oval picture, the oval picture is the following. We know nowadays that when you look out in the universe, there's all these visible things, planets, stars, galaxies, etc., which are made from normal matter. That's what we all see, these spectacular pictures of normal matter. We know that these neutrinos exist, they're cosmological neutrinos, solar neutrinos, man-made neutrinos, and they're all over, you don't see them. They come from the earth, from the sun, et cetera. If you could, you, but we have learned to detect them. There should be this dark matter, this WIMPs, probably. And these WIMPs come from one direction. And Essentially, it's a wimp wind kind of flowing and streaming through as we sit here. There's about one million of these WIMPs coming from the signals. I don't know where it is now. Now, Two or three thumbnails, essentially. And on top, there's this dark energy where nobody has an idea what it is. So the universe is much richer than you think when you look out there. It's the smallest part of the universe that we see. And you could also say we, what we are, what we see, are only a tiny fraction. We are no a special in some sense. We are a little bit cut across on top of something else. Now, we want to detect this dark matter, this swims, And there are three ways to do it. And three ways to do it depend, uh, come from the basic way how we think these particles interact with normal matter. You can see them with light, but they do interact in the following way, that there's two standard model particles, some standard particles some... Particles you know, and two of these WIMPs, which come together, and they do interact with each other. So, there's the dark matter side, these guys, there's the standard side. And you can read now the diagram in different ways. You can take two standard guys, collide them to produce this dark matter, go from right right to left. Or you could take two dark matter particles, collide them, produce standard particles, go from left to right. Or take one of each from bottom up, and take a a dark matter particle with a standard particle, and scatter on them. That's exactly what people do. This way, you produce these dark matter particles by colliding standard particles at particle accelerators. You go this way by having in the cosmos, the dark matter out there, by chance, can annihilate and produce normal particles. You see how they pop up. And you can go this way by putting a detector somewhere and let a dark matter particle scatter off it and see the scattering process. These are three ways to go. And I'll show you now how it works in practice. The first one is to produce at colliders. Take standard, model, standard particles and collide them. That's done at the LHC in Geneva in Switzerland. There's this 30 kilometer accelerator ring. The particles are uh, accelerated, protons are accelerated at extreme high energies up to multiple TeV as we call them. They go around at the speed of light at uh, the opposing directions. And the bunches of these particles collide in these detectors called Atlas and CMS when they collide, they can do reactions, and then the secondary particles spray apart, and you can, with this detector, make them visible. And looking along the beam pipe, you see these type of pictures. This is a transverse picture, where the collision of protons has created something, which, secondary particles, which move out there. Right? So this is what what, what happens on a routine basis. That's where the Higgs was discovered, etc. Now, when you look for a dark matter particle, you should look for something that's imbalanced. Because if you collide this particle, standard particle, you produce dark particles. Dark particles will leave the detector without the trace. They're dark. They don't detect. So what you would see is something like this here. There's particles going on one side, nothing on the other side. These particles come and colliding like this, and you see something going this way, there must be something else going that way, because energy and momentum are conserved. So when you see an event like this and and, and put in energy momentum conservation, you know that something went out on the other side which didn't show up in your detector, which is invisible. And, of course, by reconstructing the other side of particles, measuring how fast they were, what direction, you can actually reconstruct the mass and, any, and all the details of the other side. That's how people try to produce these particles. Next way is to read from left to right, is to collect from space dark matter collisions. You send satellite, like the Lot satellite, up, and the universe is full of dark matter particles, and one dark matter particle, another one, they can't come together, and produce normal particles, like light, gamma quanta, protons, neutrinos, all the particles we know. And if you have the satellite or other detectors, you can catch what's being produced and eventually try to see what's going on. People then measure distributions of certain signals and compare them to what you expect from sources. And if there's more, if there's an excess somewhere, then you can say, well, there's must this excess must be some, some of these particles annihilating, producing this extra radiation. The problem is, of course, always when you have some excess, is it, are you sure that it is something that's the in addition, or is it the astronomical uncertainties that go into this system where you don't really know what, what's going on there? But it is a very active field, and there are different hints that people discuss in, intensively. Now that's all nice, but the third one I think is my favorite one. You directly produce dark matter. You make it, in your dete- you should make it show up in your detector. And that's where I I spend my most time. It's called Direct Detection of Dark Matter. What you do is, you want to see one of these dark matter particles, the million of particles come here through, that it does a process, a scattering process in your detector and you see it. How would you do that? Well, the basic idea is simply that uh, you play billiard. Billiard with a white ball that's not visible. Right. If this white ball wouldn't be visible, you stare at the table, you have a set of billiard balls, and as soon as the white ball invisible could come in, you see the second, the the table, the the other balls spray apart. And by seeing it, first of all, you see that something came in, did interact, and by reconstructing the energy momentum of the other balls, you can reconstruct what came in. That's the basic idea. So invisible WIMPs do eventually scatter on atoms and produce such a signal. You want the maximum transfer of momentum. That's why you want the mass of the atom and the wimp about the same. When you play billiard with balls, which are very different in weight, it's not very efficient. The best best billiard game happens when the balls have the same size. That's why you put up an atom, which is roughly the weight of the ball you're looking for. And in addition, you have, of course, requirements for for your material, because that doesn't happen for free. You need very pure uh, material, you need transparent material. I will explain what I mean by that. You need a very high density, to have many atoms there, and you have, uh, you have to avoid any free charges around and things like that. It's very challenging technologically, etc. And then, in the end of the day, we came up with using liquefied xenon. Xenon is the most rare stable element on Earth. It only exists in the air when you breathe it. There's nothing on your feet in the Earth, it's only the air. At a fraction of 10 to the minus 8, and it's a byproduct of air liquefaction for steel industries, and you, you make it for certain special technologies. And the world annual production is about 40 tons. And we're talking about experiments which use a significant fraction of this world annual production now. It's not one atom, but many atoms. We talk about, in the end, about ton scale detectors using tons of liquefied xenon. And not only that, the, the liquid sinew is then transparent in a special way. You have to make it uh, uh, as big as you can afford. Then there's the so-called backgrounds. There's natural radioactivity. As you sit here, in average, every one of you has about 5,000 nuclear decays in, you, in your body. 5,000 mostly potassium atoms decaying. So 5,000 times per second something nuclear happens in your body. Now, that's not tolerable, because 5,000 scatters per second would mean you have no chance whatsoever to see anything. That's why we have to purify the materials that we talk about to a level where you have one event per kilogram and year. That's nine orders of magnitude cleaner. So that's an art by itself, how you take material from the environment, which is as dirty as we and everything is, make it clean enough and keep it clean enough so that eventually you have such a quiet environment that you see very rare interactions. So we need these ultra-pure materials then in extreme precision, and we also need a suitable shielding, because if you have clean material and put it here, it's going to be destroyed in hours, days, because there is cosmic rays coming in, and cosmic rays bombarding the material recreates radioactive material to the point where it can't tolerate it anymore. So you have to shield it also in a smart way. So, to avoid these cosmic rays, we will go underground. So we will do cosmology, or astronomy, but going deep underground. There's an old uh, uh, Roman uh, uh, writer that says only a stupid person would uh, go underground to look for the sun. Well, it doesn't seem that stupid anymore. So, the first thing is you build a detector, and it's essentially a shielding, and don't read the details, it's just a Matrushka, Russian doll-like structure. You build eventually a detector where inside there's this uh, this pot with liquefied xenon, and as you go out, there's layers of shielding and, 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 and et cetera. Everything is extremely pure, so you avoid all sorts of things, and it just the way. It's just really an art to make this detector clean enough. The next thing, you want to see how this thing works. What you do is then you make a special uh, pot where you can identify these wind scatters. And in the language that we use, it's called a dual-phase TPC, a dual-phase time projection chamber. It's just a, a vessel, a clean vessel. You have some boxes here, these great boxes of, of these are sensors, which are so-called, so-called photomultipliers, devices which are able to identify a single photo, every one of them. They themselves have to be ultra-clean, so it's spent years working with the producer to make them clean from radioactivity, re- from environment. Then there's some grids here, these dashed lines. you apply some high voltages. And you fill the whole thing with liquefied xenon. Liquefied xenon is about minus 100 degrees Celsius. So you fill it. Next thing, you put some pressure on top to make it go, uh, go back so that the, the liquefied level is a little bit lower here. So you push it back so that the upper structure has some gas here and down there is liquid. That's, uh, that will be important in a sec. Next, you apply on the grids some voltages. You ground this here. You put uh, uh, some positive and negative high voltage on this upper and lower grid, kilovolts, that's not little, it's like in a classical old TV uh, where you have these kind of voltages, and you apply this to have some fields in there so that charges that are in the detector, produced, drift, move and are collected. Next you look at one of the atoms, it's one of the many, many Xenon atoms in this liquefied Xenon. It's there, it's dark, it's clean. No relativity, just sitting there, absolutely boring. And then you have to be patient until such a wimp eventually scatters. There's the electric fields, then a wimp comes eventually in and does a scatter, Whoosh! and it shakes the atom. By shaking, it produces light, and the light goes out, bounces on the walls and eventually, because there's some reflective, bounces off the walls and then produces uh, charges, and you go out. What happens then is the following. The first light goes out, it immediately, at the speed of light, moves to the top and bottom array, produces, in this PMT, a signal pulse, first pulse, and then the electrons that are sh- shaken off from the atom drift slowly up there and eventually are uh, surfacing here, and in the surface there's this high voltage, they accelerate and produces a second light flash. And that's the second two pulses that we see. That's the basic thing. So if you look at this, the same thing again, if you do slow motion, that's the, that, that's the atom, and here's the thing: there's a, a, a first light pulse. Rip! When the electrons drift up here, eventually hit the surface, and then rip—they're ripped up—and there's a second pulse here. From the time structure, from time difference, you can, in the drift velocity, you can tell how long it takes. You can tell the distance, so you know that the depth inside. So you know from this argument how deep the 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 the, 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 the event was. You know the z Z coordinate essentially. And by looking at the same thing from the side from the from the top and bottom and this these are the pmts on the top and bottom There's a charge coming up here producing a light signal and you can see the pmt is going off you know it was here and the second one goes up chip uh, and goes here zack, a second signal up here so you can construct the x and y and the z position and with this method they can tell the position of the event that happened originally at a level of sub-millimeter in a structure that's meters big, so we can very precisely tell where this event happened, which is, happens, which is very very important because that allows you to do something else in a moment. Next, you put the coordinates there, call this x and y and z. With this technology, you can then look at your detector and essentially reconstruct the position of everything that goes on in your detector. That's what you get then. There's these blue dots here. I want to see clearly there's some more activity on the surface, and less in the middle. Well, that's nothing but the fact that you have made all these materials extremely radio pure, but they're still too dirty, which means there are events here which are coming from the radioactivity of the surrounding material. That's why then you use your computer and go through all the old events and throw away the events which are outside this black box. Everything that's outside closed the wall is thrown away because you know this was closed the wall. Just keep the inner part which is clean. In other words, you use the outer layer of this liquid xenon to shield the inner part, and you use your computer to separate these two parts. So then you have this inner part. There's still too many events. You want to get rid of those. And then you use the information in the signals, uh, how WIMP looks like and how something else looks like. For example, a WIMP should only scatter once, while a neutron does multiple scattering. So if a neutron goes through, you would see it. So this is, for example, if this happens was most likely a neutron two scatters two pulses doesn't make sense it, it, it's not what you're looking for you know it's something else so you, you can be sure and essentially say it's no wimp straight away that's how you use the sh- information of the pulse shape to clean up these detector even further then there's also so-called scattering of electrons and the nucleus. So if you have uh, the, the xenon here, there's the, 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 the electronic shell and the nucleus itself. And the wimp or the particle that can scatter can either scatter on the inner or the outer part. What you're looking for is scatters on the, on, the, on, the, on the nucleus. Anything that scatters off the electron is something else that you also know. So you can look at this again and you see it. There's an electronic scattering has a certain pulse structure that you can read off. It's like a fingerprint. You can tell, this was something else, I know what it is, and while uh, if it's a nuclear recoil, it uh, looks different, has a very generic structure. The ratio of the pulse height is what tells you what kind of, uh, what kind of scrap it is. So we have methods to one by one clean up this detector, to see what, in the end, what's left over, and to make it clean and cleaner. At the end of the day, the inner part of this detector is, in terms of radio purity and activity, the cleanest part in the universe. There's nothing else where I have so little activity because you look for this extreme small event rate coming from a wind, eventually it's scattering. The last thing that's again easier is you have to shield the cosmic against cosmic rays, I told you. If you put this detector here, there's no way to do what you want to do, because there's cosmic radiation, there's environment, etc. and so on. So you have to hide it and do what the Roman writer said, go underground. So we go underground in in Italy, east of Rome. So that's here on the Adriatic coast, actually close to the place where there was recently an earthquake. So we go underground. There's this road tunnel to the Apennine mountain here, going about 10 kilometers from Rome, from the Rome side to the Adriatic side. So when you go this way, you can do nothing. You make a turn, go back at halfway in the the, the mountain. There's a a detour. And there's this big underground halls that are full of experimental activities. I had once a journalist come along, and the journalist said, oh, this is like James Bond. You know the movies, right? And I said, yeah, but we are the good guys. <laughs> because in James Bond movies, it was the bad guys that are on the So that's where work, when we send students there, they think, oh, I'm allowed to go to Italy, beach, sun, etc. Then they find themselves working underground in you know, a place that's under 1,400 meters of rock. So when you work there, there's 1,400 meters of rock above your head. That's so to say. And that's the shielding against the cosmic rays that, that we have down there. And these holes are full of experiments, different experiments, and, and that's interesting. I show you when you drive the road tunnel how it goes you it's a normal road tunnel you think nothing suddenly there's a detour and there's a big gate then a magic gate if this is some magic words and uh, and some key card etc eventually the gate opens to go into that that underground facility it's quite something uh, when you first time get there it's really impressive because there's a a world itself uh, which is quite quite unique working place and of course, working in there means that there are safety rules which are different. There's uh, security, the guards that are behind the gate carry guns actually for, uh, for safety reasons etc. So you can go in, but the good thing about this is you can even go in with a huge truck and take your tons of detector in this uh, facility and build it up there and eventually have a lab like this which is looks just like here at the university. So that's the, the starting point and then you have to build this detector for that, I have a little movie that's shown as a child propaganda movie, which actually has itself a voice, so I don't have to tell you. I just play it and you, it's two, it's two minutes or so, and then I say something about it. So this is the little with truck into the associate print. And it's a great structure. It's about tons of material. It's a place is where we built up the structure, where first we built up the structure. Then this is the participating institution at Columbia University in New York, for example. Uh, it's, a meeting, it's
2: a meeting in New York. Then it's Purdue in Indiana. It's what? It's a very important part. Many young people here are people, than a star. You know, it's a great place. So, it's a great Germany
1: started all the meetings we had were built in the minister and all meetings. We together, discuss and debate about what to do, and all this problem that we have this device. But from time and time we started discussing this emotion where you can see this big first pull of water tank. The type is that outside. So we're to the and the Eventually, it bigger bigger, and it's a large
2: structure. the
1: structure ready.
2: A lot of nanograve users, testing,
1: safety readings, there. This is the PMP development, at the same time testing. All the other developers go on. This is from Heilberg PMP testing. My, my,
2: my colleagues here, Gartgenix here. This is the distillation.
1: Look this is some, you system, again, hygienic systems, a little, pumps, which really clean. the insulation yeah. column, again, the with like, doing the part of it, worldwide work, and in the right moment, this is the installation of the, uh, inside the water tank, anyway, so inside this room, here, the inside The
2: mechanical it's the status, it's the 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 best that I'm
1: on the 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 it's a system that's one of our senior engineers, the mastermind kind of tie-down stuff. And it's a profession we had about the whole, and together, young and senior people, and so it's not up lot. There's quite some activity that people spend a lot of time, years to make this, make this grand reality, and every little school that we've have loved have Towards the end. Coming towards the end, this is for example pictures how these uh, PMTs arrays were assembled, it's clean room activity every one of these PMT's is a masterpiece where, which was made radio pure to one millibackal piece which is 10,000 times cleaner than everything here so it was really much and all the cables everything is really lots of work etc and so on it was then here assembled and let's see it here it's two tons of liquefied xenon in this, in, this, in this chamber here. It's the largest liquid xenon TPC in the, in the world now. It's by now operating. It's taking science data now. And it takes only about 35 days to be the world-leading experiment. So over winter, by spring, we hope to have first results out. And who knows, maybe we see something or maybe we see n- nothing. That's the whole structure t- together, etc. And of course, we are not alone. Finding dark matter is something where... I think you could book a ticket to Stockholm. That's why different people in different continents are hunting it, so it's not only us. There's also the, the Lux collaboration US, which has actually now the world leading result, at, which we, uh, and Panda X. Uh, soon we have this Xenon 1 Ton running, etc. And the future will be an upgrade to Xenon M-Ton, because we built the whole thing such that we can exchange this TPC to make it ten times bigger. Everything was built larger, so we can switch gears in two or three two years down the road. That's interesting because that's those the parameter space we are hunting for. Up there, these corners have been excluded, and we push deeper and deeper, and these grayish areas where we expect from theory reasons where the signal should be, which means we are already touching it. We have already there, so if somebody had been lucky, we could have seen it already. But the next years, we are going to cover that space. So if all these indirect arguments make sense, we should have the next years a good chance to really see what we expect to see. And that's, again, like Columbus. When Columbus left Portugal to sail westward to discover India, there was a theory. He knew the size of the Earth roughly within a factor two. The theory was the Earth is round and sailing westward, you have to hit India, like this one. And you know there were three options. You can find India, which would have been confirmed in theory. You can find something else, called nowadays America, which is also great. Or you couldn't have found nothing which would have changed the paradigm because then the Earth wouldn't be round. So any outcome is interesting. So in the same sense, either we find what we expect there, something else, or even nothing is going to be interesting. So the next years from now, this should be a very lively field where, where things happen. Let me summarize. I think this direct detection of dark matter is a very important step, which should happen in the next years, hopefully. At least we make good progress. It would prove that ordinary matter is only a small fraction of all the matter in the universe, which has profound consequences. There's even more dark energy out there, which I didn't talk about. There's important consequences for particle physics and cosmology, but also for our understanding and our role in the universe. Which means, if all that is true, that we, as we sit here, the matter we are made of is nothing. Not only that we're not in the center of the Earth, we're not in the center of the solar system, we're not in the center of the galaxy, we're not even made of the stuff that's normal. So when you think, when you watch evening news, In the evening and see how mankind is doing stupid things. You sometimes think, why? Think a little bit. How important or unimportant are we in the end? So I think it has big intellectual uh, consequences when you work about these things about our own role as a society. And again, I think there are good chances that dark matter might be detected in the next years to come. Thank you for your
0: attention. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk, and we have now time for
3: questions. Hello, my name is Antonio. I just wanted to take you back to the start. I've got a very simple question, um, and it was when you discussed the composition of the universe. You discussed that a third of it was dark matter, and I guess the majority of it was dark energy, and then you've got a small fraction, let's say we call it normal matter. So my question is, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, we have normal matter flowing through or existing in a medium of both dark energy and dark matter. Mm -hmm. Um, So where I was confused was when you collided um, normal particles or normal matter to produce dark matter. So my question is, does dark matter exist within? the normal matter, and does it make up the medium in which the normal matter exists? So does it exist in both, or is the purpose of this experiment only to understand the medium in which the universe is made up of?
1: Right. So, uh, now this picture of, of of physics is that microscopically there are building blocks which make up all the matter. There's elementary building blocks like Lego blocks, so say, which every atom, everything you can decompose, what it's made of, right? So it's protons, neutrons, electrons, which make an, an atom. Every proton is made from quarks. So quarks and, and electrons, leptons, are so, say, the basic constituents, as we know so far. So it's like building blocks. You can decompose it. And every, all the normal matter we know is made from that. So here, as you see, it's all quarks and leptons here. Now, these dark matter particles are extra particles that, aside, new particles. Right? Like some new particle that it didn't account for. And these particles interact with our, our particles by the extra interactions. Not with light, but with extra interactions. That's why these dark matter particles should couple in one or the other way to our particles. That's why when you collide normal particles, you can produce them, or they can collide and, and annihilate to our side, can convert this way. We know this from the known particles. When you collide an electron and a positron with high energy, then they, they essentially annihilate produce a photon and produce a muon pair, for example. You can change the normal particles that we know from one type to another. And the same way this change from one type to another should also go from known to unknown to dark matter and back, et cetera. That's, that's it. Good. Now, the density is such that here, when you sit, this all normal matter, I told you, one proton per cubic centimeter is much more density here, but when you get out in the wide space of the universe, that one proton per cubic centimeter is a lot of matter, right? So out there in space, in average or large distances, this dark matter is by way dominating, while here it's such a tiny component, to so say, on top of it. So it's really, you have to see where you are.
3: Right? Hi, uh, thanks for a really interesting talk. Um, towards the end there, you showed the graph that uh, shows the sensitivity of the various detectors. Can
1: you speak a little bit? Oh, sorry, can you hear me OK? Yeah, try a little bit louder. A bit, bit louder, is that better? Yeah.
3: Yeah, OK. Towards the end, you showed the, the graph with the sensitivity of the various detectors. Uh-huh. And uh, you, you said that the sensitivity is getting to the point where it's intersecting with the regions where you expect the dark matter particles to exist. And you mentioned that there are good theoretical reasons for that. Could you just elaborate a bit on the theoretical reasons for why you expect the dark matter particles okay. to be in that region?
1: Right. So, first of all, Getting there is, if you, let's say, if you wanted to detect a radio signal from some uh, intelligent beings somewhere out in the universe, what would you do? You'd build an antenna that's bigger and bigger to catch more and more weak radio signals. But as you get bigger, you have to also do more shielding to make sure that they don't pick up your neighbor's mobile phone. That's what you do. We build this detector bigger, cleaner and cleaner and cleaner to shield everything, to eventually pick up this very minute signal. That's how we get deeper and deeper. Now how do we know that what we should be looking for? That's, uh, for, uh, if you go into physics, there's a law that says that the wavelength, the quantum kind wave of wavelength of a particle, the so-called De Broglie wavelength, is proportional to one over the mass. The heavier it is, the smaller. So that means, you know, from the mass, you know, the classical disc, how, how big the scattering object is. And then you know it's coupling. It's a weakly weak intact mass so a wimp, so it's a weak coupling in front of it. And there's some model parameter, which is 1.1 or something like And putting these numbers together, you know that roughly where this cross-section should be. And this grey plot, which was, I showed you, comes from specific theories which were built, actually, to do what I just said in words. But the argument that this should be the region is so very generic for any type of wimp that you come up with. There's some loopholes if you ask, ask experts, but that's so say where most people would say that the, the the signal should be. I hope OK, so. you questions?
2: Um, thanks, Professor. Um, uh, just a question that uh, actually I think I asked Lisa Randall, the, the GSU, and uh, not the last but the previous one. Uh, with, I think she's working on this the idea about the imbalance between regular matter and antimatter in the creation of the universe or this universe, uh, and uh, how that might be uh, in accordance proportionally with the ratio of dark matter to regular matter. Just wondering if there's been any progress in that exploration that you're aware of.
1: Okay, if I understood the question correctly, I'd tell me if it's correct. There's a big problem in physics that's actually heavily debated, is the matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe. Because if you have the Big Bang, you produce matter and antimatter, protons-antiprotons, for example, and if a proton is an antiproton, annihilates, the it makes photons. Now, that said, the universe should be empty, because if, hmm. if it's symmetric, then there should be a proton-antiproton, and an electron-antielectron, and the, once in a while the medium and go away, and only photons should be left. To make the matter, the amount of matter that we see today us possible, there must be somewhere in asymmetry. And explaining this asymmetry is called the Barron asymmetry of the Universe, as we call it in terms. And the standard theory that we have doesn't explain that. The standard theory would say, we, would say we shouldn't exist. But fortunately, this is wrong. We do exist. And there's different ways how to explain that. And the most plausible, convincing way to explain that, actually, is nowadays uh, connected to neutrinos. Neutrinos are special particles because they are ghosts, because of being ghostly, they have special properties which allows them in the early universe to decay in an asymmetric way and produce a little seed asymmetry which then amplifies to, to nowadays asymmetry. Or we could say, if that's correct, our existence here, that we sit here, d- depends on neutrinos. If neutrinos wouldn't be there, we wouldn't even exist, to, because everything would just go away. However, we should say there's other ways to try to explain that asymmetry, which shall go different routes, this neutrino route is what I would say the most plausible one. At the moment, nobody knows for sure, but we also know that the standard theory doesn't explain its asymmetry. There's also explanations which are connected to dark matter. You can have a dark matter, anti-dark matter asymmetry, and can also connect that and theorists do everything when they have time. They play with this. So, but I would say again, the most plausible explanation is from these neutrino, makers, neutrino decays.
2: Uh, Just a quick follow-up question. Um, Is there any connection also possibly with the uh, Higgs boson field in the sense of being in a symmetry there as well as neutrinos? Is there any possible explanation there?
1: Right. So the Higgs... uh, It's a good question. You seem to be an expert. (laughs) So the Higgs boson was something that was postulated a long time ago and was found uh, some years ago. And the Higgs boson. So say once you have it, you start to immediately ask yourself: Is there one or more Higgs bosons, etc.? And the Higgs boson itself actually the, uh, fulfills the conditions that you need to produce an asymmetry. But the, when you do the calculation, the asymmetry that you get with is 20 orders of magnitude too weak. So it would be only 10 to the minus 20 of us here, etc. So no way. So people speculated for years to extend the standard theory, more Higgs bosons in certain ways, to get a larger asymmetry. And uh, these theories have been thought for as extra particles and none of them has so far been found. So one prominent version is called supersymmetry, the supersymmetric standard model. In that supersymmetric model, there's one corner of primary space where it would would work still, but it's getting more and more under pressure and nothing has been seen so far.
3: Hi there. Thank you for the talk. Um, You showed a diagram uh, where... Uh, you explained the different uh, types of converting between uh, real matter and, uh, uh, was it dark matter? And there were three conversions, uh, and uh, I didn't quite follow why it would be nonsensical, why there wouldn't be a fourth one.
1: Can you say last sentence again? Why? Why, uh, why isn't there a fourth conversion? Uh, yeah, so three conversions. It's essentially there's these blobs, so say, where two normal particles and two dark matter parts connect, right? So you can read it in different ways. It's always when you have particles, you can read the reaction forward and backward in time, or etc. So there's this connection, two normal particles, two dark matter particles. You can take two normal particles, collide them, produce two dark matter particles. Or you can start on dark matter take two dark matter particles, for example, in the universe they may collide, to produce normal particles. Or you can take one normal and a dark matter particle and scatter a dark matter particle of it. And the last is what we do in this experiment in... Italy, we have a normal particle there, namely the xenon atom, and the, and, the, and the protons and neutrons there. And there is a dark matter particle coming in, scatters, and the recoil, the billiard game, is with the xenon atom then. That's the third kind, right? And the LHC was the one where it takes normal particles to produce dark matter, and the satellite was taking two dark matter particles in the universe, which collide and produce radiation that you see with the satellite. This is the three ways to read it. Uh,
2: thanks for your lecture. Uh, my question is, uh, 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 why do you believe that dark matter can penetrate through Earth? Is it possible to uh, have a dark matter that uh, cannot penetrate through Earth?
1: I don't think so. So if it would not penetrate, it would act, you would see it all over, it would fall on your feet, so to so say, example, right? It
2: would scatter at uh, the surface. Well, the...
1: if you have, let's say, if you, if you ask yourself, why do you stand here and not fall down there, that's actually... This, the photons, the electromagnetic interactions. Mm-hmm. The gravity pulls you down there, and what keeps you from falling deeper is that atoms are stable, robust, and they have it. If you have, had matter on their feet which would not have electric, electric charges, it would just collapse. That's what happens, for example, in the, in the astronomy in a neutron star. A neutron star, there's no electromagnetic charge anymore, so it goes together and makes enormous matter density, right? So it's the electromagnetic interaction that make the the matter stable it's the gravity it pulls together so when you put your feet on the, on the floor you stand there you don't fall into that because there's this, this electromagnetic interaction this exchange of photons you can describe that you stand here by, by let's say you had this electromagnetic interaction being photons exchange essentially and if you had if you didn't have that so say if you had matter that would uh, that would behave different. That would have strong interactions. You would see it all over in, in the astrophysics, in cosmology, in different places. You would see. It. So you have to come up with a, with new matter that is as elusive as neutrinos, for example. And as I told you, as you put up your thumb, there's from the sun there's 20, 60 billion neutrinos coming through, and you don't interact with them. They just go through. Thanks.
0: Okay. Maybe last question. I don't see hands. Then uh, let's thanks Manfred again, and thank you for the discussion. Thank you.